0: To Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today, investigators. I am so thrilled that you're here, as we are going to take one out of the Patreon vault today from May of last year, all about The Stork Club. Every week over on Patreon, I do extra episodes that I call Not Done Yet. This Not Done Yet is number nine from May of last year, but oh so connected. The Stork Club is a super big deal in New York City. It's a super big deal internationally as well. Remember, the Stork Club is the place that Truman Capote and Phoebe Pierce Vreeland would head into the city and sneak off to. The Stork Club is mentioned everywhere and anywhere It is a very famous backdrop into the New York City scene from the 1930s to the 1960s. Before we begin today's episode, I do have one correction to make from last week's story. Diana Vreeland does have a granddaughter named Phoebe, but it is not Truman Capote's Phoebe Pierce Vreeland. I investigated that one a little too quickly and forgot apparently how to do math for a moment. Everything else in that episode is completely solid, but if Diana Freeland and Phoebe Pierce Freeland are related, I do not know how yet. I am on that case, as well as the rest of the stories coming to you in this Capote's Coterie arc, and especially as we're about to weave our man Nick into the picture too. This is an investigation where nothing is linear and everything is connected, but it's also a bit of a roller coaster too. I do hope you enjoyed this one from the vault. Again, this is number nine. We're on number 46 now over at patreon.com slash done and done. You can always head over there if you're looking for a little bit more to your investigation. I do hope you enjoyed this one all about the infamous stork club and all of its spider webs. Let's investigate. investigators, it's Alicia. I am not done yet talking about the East Coast or the Stork Club, which is known as New York's New Yorkiest Joint. And I'm not done talking about our Once in Future book club. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining me today. We have got some business to discuss. Don't forget, Saturday, May 21st is our first done and done book club. We're going to be talking about Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote Mark it on your calendars, 2 2 o'clock Eastern time, Saturday, May 21st. It is a quick read or a quick listen. Again, I will recommend if you are a fan of listening to books, the narrated version by Michael C. Hall, if you have audible credits, is fantastic. I'll add a link in for the text of a totally free version as well into the notes of this. I sure hope everybody can come. We're going to have a lot of fun. One of the things that is super prevalent within Breakfast at Tiffany's Hell, within the Two Mrs. Woodwards, uh, so many books, so much of the time period centers around the Stork Club. We visited there in the time with our Two Mrs. Woodward arc. It's mentioned just like in every New York City story with a certain set. The Stork Club attaches to so much in society, Hollywood politics. And I want you to know that the Stork Club operates from 1929 to the mid 1960s. So it is roughly open as the same time as Garden of Allah is. It's going to close in 1965, about six years after Garden of Allah. These two establishments are running concurrently. Yes, naturally, one is a long term hotel place, the other is a restaurant, but They both have their special little, ooh, what's the word I'm looking for, place uh, in the time that they live in. Three very influential decades, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. The Stork Club is the place to be in New York City, even though it's a restaurant and bar and club, hangout, and not a hotel. Let's talk about exactly how iconic this place was in the scene. And I don't know if you get to the Stork Club without mentioning the Cotton Club. The Cotton Club opens about six years before the Stork Club, and it's all mob-connected, and especially how the Stork Club filters down. The Cotton Club is originally (laughs) known as a place called Club Deluxe, and Club Deluxe is owned and operated by the legendary boxer Jack Johnson. Not my favorite hippie singer, who sings to the ocean every day, but the boxer legend, Jack Johnson. He opens, Jack Johnson does, this place on the upper floor of the building at 142nd Street and Lenox Avenue in the heart of Harlem. And Club Deluxe is a supper club at the time because Prohibition has happened. There's a bootlegger and gangster that's going to get out of Sing Sing in 1923. This is a big release day for a guy named... Oney Madden. And Oney Madden's like, hey, Jack Johnson, how about I take over the club and you just stay the manager and I'll bring in all of my illegal beer to sell here. At this point, the Club Deluxe is changed to the Cotton Club and oh, whoa, so much history will take place there. Our man Nick doesn't talk about this arc too much, but And again, this story today is about the Stork Club. But I want just to make a a point here that Club Deluxe, the Cotton Club, get white people headed to Harlem. At this point, color lines are mixing. The Cotton Club is segregated when it opens. Like, these are not good days for folks of color. Lots of stuff happens. But set that in your background is... White-black city lines in New York City are a mixing, but they're not. Okay, Club Deluxe, open. Cotton Club, going strong. We have the Stork Club that is going to open in 1929. From 1929 to 1931, there's an original location that lives at 132 West 58th Street. But within two years, in 1931... The Stork Club is going to move to its lasting location. This is at 3 East 53rd. Prohibition agents have shut that first location down, but the second and permanent location just moved five blocks and east. So they're right on and off 5th Avenue. Like, pretty impressive. 5th Avenue is where it's at. The club gets a little swankier. Today, there's a subway station located at the old location of the Stork Club. But hold on to a little twist to the end, because that's coming. But the Stork Club, when it opens, is different than other clubs. Cotton Club may have been the swanky place in Harlem. El Morocco is known for its sophistication. Toot Shores had the kind of the sporting crowd. But if you're in the city, it is the Stork Club, which is going to mix power, money, glamour, and celebrity within the city. So, huzzah, set up the Stork Club. Who is the mover and shaker behind all of it? It's a dude named Sherman Billingsley. Sherman Billingsley was born in Enid, Oklahoma, March 10th, 1896. He's the youngest child in a family that has ended up in Oklahoma from the 1893 land run. He grows up in Enid, Oklahoma. There's a one-room schoolhouse. At some point in the Billingsley family, oh gosh, Sherman's older brother commits homicide, and the whole family will pick up and move to be closer to the older brother in his imprisonment. Once Big Brother is sprung from the joint, Big Brother will ask Sherman to help him out with his bootlegging business, naturally. The family is going to move then from Oklahoma City And Sherman has another brother, too, whose bootlegging business goes far outside of the city. It is a multi-state operation. So when Sherman Billingsley is 18, he is arrested and convicted in the federal system. He is sentenced to 15 months. He serves part of this time in Leavenworth before Sherman's sentence is reversed. His big brother, one of them, heads to New York City to essentially, uh, get away, run away from his mafia partners in Detroit with the multi-state liquor bootlegging thing. And once Sherman is sprung, he goes off to New York City too. And Sherman's new goal is to kind of begin his life becoming a prosperous man. Sherman's first move is to buy drugstores, and he will eventually end up owning a real estate business so he can buy more drugstores because Drugs, right? Drugs and alcohol. Woo! Enter 1929. We have an ex-bootlegger because Prohibition is now gone. So, you know, bootlegging is just regular alcohol sales now. So I want you to go back and think about the cotton club stuff. Sherman Billingsley will say in his memoir that his club was founded, quote, was founded as a front for a nasty trio of jazz-age mobsters, including Oney Madden, owner of the Cotton Club. He says he thwarted schemes by Jack Legs Diamond and Dutch Schultz to take over the Stork Club, and that he was kidnapped and held for ransom by gangsters muscling in on his booming business. Rumor says that Sherman Billingsley had enough dough to pay off that jazz, how did he call him? the nasty trio of jazz-age mobsters and buys himself out of that particular quandary. Y'all, they opened in 1929. By 1936, the Stork Club is firmly established in New York as the place to be. Old Sherman has taken in about a million dollars a year in 1936. According to Life Magazine... Sherman rarely misses a night at his club, quote, shaking hands, slapping backs, greeting movie stars, musicians, powerful Pauls, and famous athletes, keeping the booze flowing, playing cards with the clientele. One of the most infamous and famous things about Sherman, he has secret hand signals for the staff. So he's always there. He's there at the Stork Club every single day and runs the whole establishment with his hand signals. So he'd flash them discreetly while he's sitting at a table with customers. We're going to talk about what they are. But Sherman doesn't mess around. The store club is under his tight watch and control, probably established right from the long ago days of Prohibition. You don't get this smooth at hand signals unless you practice them a lot but everybody in that joint always knows exactly what the boss is thinking. Here's how some of the hand signals work. If Sherman Billingsley is sitting down at a table uh, and touches the knot of his tie, that means there is no check for this table. They don't even have to pay for what they're doing. We got it. It's comped. If Sherman points down, With the left hand index finger, that means bring a round of drinks for the table. If his left hand is palm up on the table, it means bring this table a bottle of champagne. Handkerchiefs are a thing. If Sherman Billingsley touches his handkerchief, it means to get them a bottle of perfume. Hold on to that. We're going to talk about that famous perfume in just a second. If Sherman Billingsley touched his nose at the tip with two fingers, that's kind of like, ooh, this smells. Uh, That meant that this table is not important people or their check is no good. They're scamming us. Smelly. If uh, Sherman's left hand is to the side of the table, palm to the floor and fingers outstretched, that is the hand signal for... The music in the main dining room is too loud. Turn it down. If Sherman has his hands together with his fingers laced and his left thumb up, that means get those jerks out and never let those jerks back in the place again. So many hand signals, so little time. Let's talk about that perfume for just a second. Goodness. Okay. Uh, Sherman Billingsley. Always about the prizes. Always about the added gimmicks. Uh, He's got a few gimmicks. The first, Le Gallien, is a French perfumery. And it's known for its high-end perfume. One of those brands is Sort which are given as gifts from Sherman Billingsley to his wealthy clientele. Sort of Lege perfume becomes known as the fragrance of the stork club. But that's not all. He, again, really into gimmicks. So bring this table a bottle of perfume. Got a bunch of those on hand, but it's not the only merch he has. So... One of the things that (laughs) Sherman does, I found, I came across this uh, old thing about looking for collectible items from the Stork Club because it's a a huge collectible field. Uh, Somebody writes in, my wife has a lot of stuff from the Stork Club. All were direct presents from Sherman Billingsley. Among the objects. So here's the kind of stuff he's given out. Lipsticks, ladies compacts, Lots of Stork Club perfume, large ceramic ashtray marked with for Chesterfield cigarettes only, and a Stork Club logo. She also has, the wife does in this situation, a lifetime Stork Club credit card in her name. So this guy is going through to find what kind of value some of these items have. They do have value. Caveat is you got to work to kind of find what that value is. But I came across one thing for sale that I thought was fascinating. I have seen different gift sets as well. I saw a three-soap set branded with the Stork Club up for auction. Always something being given away if you are the right sort of clientele. You will hear about this in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Another thing you'll hear, I think it's Mag Wildwood Wants to go to the Stork Club for the Balloon Drop. Let me talk to y'all about the Balloon Drop. This definitely happened on New Year's Eve. It happened some nights just during the week as well. Sherman Billingsley would fill hundreds of balloons. Sometimes they have a $100 bill in them. Sometimes they have a ticket for that sort of perfume. Sometimes it's a lipstick. Sometimes it's a compact. I want you to think of... Goodness, Uh, sort of the activity and bumble around that rooftop theater garden. It's a scramble. So at some point in the night, normally midnight, the net is cut and all the balloons drop and women go frantic trying to catch the balloons. Did they get a hundred bucks? Did they get a bottle of perfume? Did they get a compact or a soapbox or a lipstick? Always a gimmick. This place is legitimately the scene. All the movers, all the shakers. The Stork Club is the symbol of cafe society. So for 30 years, it's the hotspot. Movie stars, wealthy people, showgirls, politicians, aristocrats. Now this whole legend of the Stork Club very early in its beginning gets a little help from Walter Winchell. Walter Winchell... We're going to spend a few minutes on here. Is the inspiration for uh, Broadway's sweet smell of success scoundrel character, J.J. Hunsecker? Walter Winchell holds court at Table 50 of the Stork Club for years. Walter Winchell never pays a tab, and he makes the place famous. Walter Winchell is an infamous gossip columnist. He wears his fedora cocked to the side, cigarette ash dusting his typewriter keys. It is uh, said that he treated words like hand grenades, lobbing them at celebrities and politicos waiting for tables. So Walter Winchell goes after everybody. Lots of targets through the years. Frank Sinatra, Marilyn Monroe, Madam Shankai Chek, J. Edgar Hoover, Humphrey Bogart. Oh, most especially the Kennedys. But there are so many stars coming in and out of the Stork Club, and he writes on everybody. Even J.D. Salinger, y'all, before he pulls his reclusive act, hangs out at the Stork Club. Table 50 is located in the Cub Room. This is the inner sanctum of the Stork Club. (laughs) Uh, It is known as the headquarters, this is such a good turn of phrase, the headquarters of a perverse yet fabulous sort of intelligence agency. The place is bugged. It has two-way mirrors all around to allow the discreet surveillance of celebrities and staff. Secrets wafting through all of it. Walter Winchell considers uh, voyeurism kind of a noble profession. He likes to pierce inflated egos and remind people that celebrities are very ordinary just like them. This is a great quote from Walter Winchell. Democracy is where everybody can kick everybody else's ass, but you can't kick Winchell's. Ha. All right. Walter Winchell is more than likely introduced to Sherman Billingsley by Sherman Billingsley's mistress. This is an actress. Oh, God, this is just incredible. Ethel Merman is doing the thing with Sherman, introduces Sherman to Walter Winchell, And thus begins in, like, 1930, Winchell's new top spot, Table 50. uh, It's going to be what he bases his column on, what Winchell saw. And at this time, Walter Winchell isn't just in print. He has a radio program, too, that begins in 1930, where he provides these, like, 15-minute updates on what's happening on Broadway. the store club is a little bit different than other clubs in the city. Competitor clubs do not stay open on Sunday nights or in the summer. Everything shuts down in New York City for the summer or did at that point. The Stork Club is not this way. It remains open on Sundays and also in the summer months. I want to get us up to kind of the mid 40s to talk about what happens to the Stork Club in that time period and some of the press about it. I'm going to take you deep inside the scene. In 1946, Sherman Billingsley will buy the whole building that the Stork Club is in for $300,000. He will expand the space, improvements, so on. And these are done, from what I can gather, 46, 47, 48, because there's a lot of press that comes out about the Stork Club at that time. I'm going to quote a few here to set the stage. This is from 1946, Lucius Beebe in the Stork Club bar book. To millions and millions of people all over the world, the Stork Club symbolizes and epitomizes the deluxe upholstery of quintessentially urban existence. It means fame. It means wealth. It means an elegant way of life among celebrated folk. The stork is the dream of suburbia, a shrine of sophistication in the minds of countless thousands who have never seen it, the fabric and the pattern of legend. You know about the Stork Club if you live in middle of nowhere USA. The Stork Club is legendary by the mid-40s. Got an excerpt here from 1948. This is a guide to eating this is called Knife and Fork. This is kind of the precursor to the Zagat Dining Guide. This particular piece is written by Lawton McCall, who was a described noted man about town, journalist, and veteran gourmet. Whoa. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna set the scene. This is Lawton McCall. Stork Club. Sherman Billingsley's Glamour School. Strict in its standards, any infraction of good manners is punishable by quiet yet prompt expulsion and permanent blacklisting. Even the atmosphere you breathe is specially cleaned and filtered. Lighting is just right and service incredibly wonderful. Food? Anything you desire. Drinks? Any brand you name. If your party is sizable and squired by someone of the successful business executive type, the waiter will look surprised if no champagne is ordered. Layout consists of islanded bar, confronting you as you enter, cocktail lounge, off which are the glassed-in main dining room for dining and dancing, and the club room, small, quiet, seating only about 100. And upstairs, a small loner's room, a loner's room, y'all, for singleton eating and the blessed event room for private party occasions. This is after the 1946 Renault. The Stork Club opens at 11 a.m. for the benefit of late breakfasters. Packed at lunchtime with cub room operating on a men-only basis. Cocktail time, crowd has a choice of the bar the lounge or the main room when there's music for cocktail dancing, followed by music to eat to. If you're elegantly thrifty in a leisurely sort of way, you'll take the flat-priced five-course BT dinner. The BT means before taxes. Should you prefer to be fed faster, there is a BC dinner at a stepped-up tempo for for theater curtain beaters. Dance tempo and cabaret tax resume at 9, with never skipped a beat until closing, with a continuous two-way traffic of stork glamorites arriving and departing. Attire is optional, but when tables are scarce, strangers may find it to their advantage to present themselves at entrance chain, what solid gold entrance chain, in their best evening togs. A young college man escorting a dazzling goddess is sure to get in because Mr. Billingsley is proud of having his tables embellished by the fairest. Sunday opens at 1 p.m. So much. Robert W. Dana in 1948 has a little bit of press about the place as well. This is from Where to Eat in New York. Dana writes... The stork features food as well as celebrities, excellent food from a kitchen stressing French cuisine. Several dishes have been born there, like the famous chicken hamburger, which is a tasty mixture of boned and ground chicken mixed with salt, pepper, nutmeg, butter, heavy cream, and breadcrumbs. The hamburger is served with tomato sauce, French fried sweet potatoes, and buttered green peas. All of the many wonders of the French cuisine are trotted out one at a time or another. They look beautiful, taste delicious, and are presented with smooth efficiency. One of the favorite desserts is a confection called Snowball, a ball of ice cream covered with shredded coconut over which chocolate sauce has been poured. Open daily, a la carte, luncheon and dinner, full course dinner averages $6.00 air-conditioned. The cover of the Stork Club menu has a drawing of many of the stars who frequent the establishment. That menu cover is done by an artist named Al Dorn. The illustration on the cover and back by Al Dorn is best we can tell. I've got a few names from that menu. on Pictured on the menu, Dorothy Kilgallen, Arthur Godfrey, Tallulah Bankhead, Morton Downey, Sherman Billingsley, naturally. Walter Winchell, of course. Milana Turner. Joan Crawford. The menu is legendary. Just the art on it. Okay, back to Dana. Uh, here's the inside of the Stork Club menu from which diners pick their favorite meal. Of course, the sirloin steak is always great, but I'd suggest the shad row with bacon. There are specials of the day that are stapled on. This is the season which the Shad returned to New York's own Hudson River, and the city has its very own fishing industry this time of year. Are y'all getting a little bit of the feeling, this is the place. Okay, if you're a star, if you're a celebrity, if you're a bold-faced name, you're, you get the hand signal. This table doesn't need a check. The writer John Lars says that uh, celebrities were the sugar that Billingsley used to swat the fly. He gets the celebrities in, all the big names, and everybody comes to see who's hanging out in the stork club that night. Holy cats. Okay, so 1945, New York Times will interview Sherman Billingsley about the stork club's hierarchy. Like, hey, man, like, are you kind of a snob? And Billingsley says the out of towners come to see the natives who come to see each other which makes a lot of sense uh, another frequent guest who is attempting to decipher the dna of billingsley's business strategy comes up with an alternate description quoting the show consists of common people looking at celebrities and the celebrities looking at themselves in the mirrors and they all sit pop-eyed in admiration <laughs> Walter Winchell, when asked about this, it says, The stork discriminates against everybody. It's a snob joint. Goodness. It sounds a lot like a first-run Mortimer's. Got one more here from the Daily Beast. But perhaps New York's New Yorkiest place meant something different. Something less romantic than whatever Winchell intended. Peek behind the curtain and you would see a manufactured glamour a cheap reflection bouncing off the two-way mirrors. As an employer, Billingsley's track record was poor. Labor groups launched a flurry of lawsuits, and he was a vicious adversary. There were other disputes that chipped away at the club's veneer. As the Red Scare unfolded, J. Edgar Hoover, Roy Cohn, and Joseph McCarthy, men who all knew the power of celebrity, appeared at the stork club more frequently. In 1951, famed black entertainer Josephine Baker will claim the club had refused her service. This is big news in the day. I want to drop here that this the stork club is where Dominic and Linny frequent. They go on a date here back early in their courtship and they will frequent the stork club during their time as young marrieds in New York City in the mid-50s. It is a sad end within the 1960s when the Stork Club, beginning of the 60s, begins to advertise for the first time promoting their $1.99 lunch special of a burger and fries. They're losing a little bit of their distinctive glamour in the beginning of the 1960s, and the Stork Club will close in 1965. Sherman Billingsley will pass away a year later in 1966. Okay, got a spiderweb for you. The site of the Stork Club is purchased. And there now is also a subway station. But also in the place of the New York's New Yorkiest spot <laughs> is a place called Paley Park. Paley Park is financed by the William Paley Foundation, husband of Babe, founder of CBS. And the Paley Park there is now just a tiny little quiet oasis with trees. There's some seating and a waterfall. But when that site was being excavated and built up, there are stills, uh, moonshine stills found within the foundations. The Stork Club, y'all, legendary. Be on the lookout for it. Once you know some of what you're looking for, you will see the Stork Club all the time. Thank you for tuning into this episode about the Stork Club. I hope you learned a little bit. Our next two bonuses are going to drop next week, and we're going to be talking about Truman Capote, who is the real Holly Golightly, some potential contenders, As we prep for our May 21st book club. Y'all, I'm so excited. Back in the East Coast. In this legendary time with these legendary people. It's so delightful. But no more delightful and legendary than you. Thank you, investigators, for tuning in and your support. And being just downright awesome. Can't wait to catch you back next week got an episode on Monday, bonus episodes coming out as well, and book club. Yeah, I love a book club. Can't wait to talk then. Until we do, stay curious, keep on investigating, sending y'all all the love. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com